Good evening, everyone, and Happy New Year. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and uh, I'm so pleased to see that so many of you braved the cold and came out tonight, because it's very warm in here. <laughs> um, this is our first program of the new de of the new year and the new decade, and um, we're very honored to have Dr. Fred Emil Katz here as our first speaker of this decade. Um, I know that some of you are friends of Fred's, and but I, for those of you who aren't, I'm just going to tell you a few things about him. He uh, is a sociologist and a professor, and also a Holocaust survivor. He's worked in factories, he served in the U.S. Army, and he's worked in, at s several major universities, um, including the University of New York at Buffalo and Tel Aviv University. He's author of six books, and um, the very first one that I found in the Pratt Library catalog is from 1968. Autonomy and Organization, the Limits of Social Control. It's a wonderful thing about this library and, and working here is that you can always find these treasures. So we have this one, and there was another one that I found that I think was on the table back there. So if you, wanna, if you want to see where Fred got his start, this is it. Um, he's here tonight to talk to us about his new book, Our Quest for Effective Living. And I'm not going to steal his thunder. Um, it's a very interesting new social uh, concept, and we're delighted to have all of you here and have you here, Fred, to explain it to us. Well, thank you, Judy. Um, you're the spark plug behind these programs. <laughs> you organize them, plan them, and see that they work and I'm really grateful for, for what you're doing for, for me and for this library. And I want to welcome all you folks here who braved the cold weather to help me start the decade. I didn't know I was doing that. but <clears throat> Well, there's one <clears throat> guiding idea behind my book <clears throat> and that is that science is more than observing what exists in nature. Science is adventure of the mind, first and foremost. It took many creative leaps of the mind about physics to understand physical space. And it took creative leaps of the mind about genetic biology to understand biological space. And my books offer some creative leaps, I hope, to help us understand social space in which we live our lives. That's the idea behind it, that science is not only observing what exists in nature, but it involves creative mental leaps to make sense of it. I'm going to talk about three themes of the book, and afterwards, if we have time, I'll mention a fourth one. And I'll answer questions, and I'll go into why I wrote the book. Uh, Judy mentioned my background a bit, and that is relevant, that I'm both a Holocaust survivor and a professional sociologist who feels that our profession, uh, sociology, has failed us uh, in terms of what's really happening in the world. And this makes it just extremely important important that we jumpstart a new science about social space, and that's what I attempt to do. A famous physicist, namely Henry Magenau, wrote a famous book called The Nature of Physical Reality. In that book, he stated that the fundamental tool of science, the basic instrument of science, are constructs. DNA is a construct. The periodic table in chemistry is a construct. Numbers are constructs, and so are Newton's laws. What do all of these have in common? What are constructs? Constructs are ways of being aware of something that exists in nature 
and adding the creative mental leap to make sense of that something in nature. Constructs which resulted from creative leaps are the underpinnings of modern science, such as physics and genetic biology. Making use of constructs such as DNA has opened up gates to a wide range of knowledge, particularly in the medical field at, at this time, and more generally about the world in which we live. In my book, In Our Quest for Effective Living, I propose four constructs, which I call themes, which are the themes of this book, which I'll describe in a minute. Making use of these constructs opens up a range of new knowledge, this includes how even very successful people may feel vulnerable. In the book, I talk about Walter Cronkite, whom we all think of as a strong person, and about high-ranking army officers, all of whom appear to feel very vulnerable. And I address how genocides claim to be justified on moral grounds. And about the social imprints on human sexuality and the effectiveness of prayer and the appeal of false messiahs. So this wasn't enough. Anyway, on to the first theme. The first theme is closed moral worlds. We are brought up under moral codes. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, and most emphatically, don't kill people. Yet when you serve in the military, when you find yourself on the battlefield, you are made to feel that killing the enemy is necessary. It is your duty. It is fully justified. There on the battlefield, a morality prevails that is entirely different from the civilian morality of your upbringing. There, killing people is morally justified. A local morality exists and dominates what you feel you must do. Is it any wonder that after returning home from the battlefield, say from Iraq, many of you cannot fully shed the killing is justified morality? And that as a consequence, the two very different moral worlds can come into collision within you, showing up in the form of rage, pain, and disorientation we know as post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm saying that this is what's really going on in post-traumatic stress disorder, two worlds in collision inside the heads of people who are trying to fight this out. This leads to a wider question about moral context. I call them closed moral worlds, which is the first theme. Anyone who has ever taken a course in psychology will have heard of the Milgram experiments, where people inflicted electric shocks on innocent persons when someone in authority ordered them to do so. Was obedience to authority as Milgram believed, and the title of his book is Obedience to Authority. Is that the real reason for these unexpected results? Well, think again. Actually, in the experiments, Milgram created a morality, a closed moral world that made the participants believe they were fully justified inflicting shocks on innocent persons. The power of such closed worlds in real situations, not only in the laboratory as in Milgram's laboratory, but in real situations is a theme of this book. Christopher Browning, a historian, showed us how the Milgram experiments apply in the real world. In a book titled Ordinary Men, Browning described a group of German police reservists who lived in Hamburg during the Second World War and being a bit older than army-aged men and not eager to serve on active duty, they were 
not enthusiastic Nazis, nor were they active anti-Nazis. They were just ordinary German citizens, little guys who tried to avoid active duty by signing up as police reservists in a unit that they thought would never have to go to war. Here, in a prefunctory way, they met periodically for supposed military training. All went quite well until, to their surprise, their group was activated, sent to Poland, and given the assignment to exterminate entire villages of Jews. And over the course of over a year, they did it, killing thousands of innocent people. Yes, some of them complained a bit at first, but over time, virtually all of them became active and enthusiastic killers of innocent people. And this is not in a laboratory, this is real stuff. How could this happen? While these men were still in Hamburg, before they left for Poland, they began to be molded into a cohesive group with a good deal of camaraderie between them over the course of their joint meetings and training activities. And after they were sent to Poland, they became an even more cohesive unit. Remember, the entire unit was sent to Poland their group remained, the Hamburg group remained intact. There in Poland, after they received their assignment, there emerged an entirely local moral system where it was one's duty to stick to the instruction of carrying out killings. It was one's moral obligation to carry out the killings. There being a shooter was a badge of honor and being reluctant to shoot made one feel guilty about letting down one's colleagues. These were the norms, the moral rules, Browning cites in his report of the local culture that evolved among these police reservists. Here then, just as in the Milgram experiments, there was a closed moral world where the participants' own civilian morality, that you don't kill innocent people, was totally excluded. Here a closed moral world prevailed. Here mass murder is being justified under a so-called morality that permitted no outside humane values to be considered. Now here's a, a scary issue, as though this weren't scary enough. We're all aware of nuclear proliferation, of nuclear weapons falling into the hands of rogue governments whose policies we don't trust, North Korea, Iran. But perhaps even more dangerous a situation arises if nuclear weapons fall into the hands of rogue groups, such as religious extremist groups that are not under the control of a particular country with a government that to some extent controls its citizens. The real danger then to the very survival of our species is that such rogue groups may operate under a closed moral world that tells them they is entirely justified to actually use the nuclear weapons they may feel morally justified in actually using them. Given the character of some of the closed worlds I've been describing, this is probably not too far-fetched. For this reason, if for no other, my work about closed moral worlds is surely just the beginning. We need far more refined knowledge about what generates, what creates closed moral worlds, how they can be stopped, where and how they can be punctured, Speaking of a local moral world being punctured, I'm reminded, and I think many of you will be reminded of Senator Joseph McCarthy's campaign against supposed communists in, in the early 1950s, how there was a, a virtual reign of terror against medicine, many innocent persons that seemed to have a morality, a momentum, a moral mora momentum of its own, that seemed for a while to be unstoppable. 
And yet, quite abruptly, McCarthy's moral balloon was punctured. His reign of terror ended quite abruptly. We need to discover rules, perhaps laws, that govern the workings of closed moral worlds. This is a challenge before us that begs to be explored. Now I'll turn to another theme, how we transcend. Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist, was an inmate of the Auschwitz concentration camp. He survived to write a remarkable book, Man's Search for Meaning. I'm sure many of you have come across it. In that book, he reports the following. <clears throat> While at Auschwitz, he served as a doctor to some of the other inmates. One day, while making the rounds as a doctor, he came up upon a young woman. She was lying on a cot facing a window where a tree could be seen on the outside. The woman was obviously very close to death. She knew it. Dr. Frankel knew it. But Dr. Frankel, in an artificially cheerful manner of a doctor, says, goes up to her and says, how are you? How do you, how do you feel? She replied, I feel wonderful. I've never felt better in my life. He, yes, she, I've never felt better. I have my friend. He, your friend? She, yes, my friend, the tree. He, thinking she's delirious, she's out of it. You talk to the tree? She, oh, yes. And he answers me. He, and what does he say? She, he says, I am here. I am here. I am eternal life. She found eternal life. That's pretty good. She found eternal life. Now what happened here <clears throat> is that the dying woman has found a way to transcend the horrors of the world around her. She found a way to reach out beyond the immediate place in which she existed get access to something beyond that place of horror and somehow bring that external distant place into her present, into her here and now to help her cope with her here and now. This, the reaching out beyond the here and now and bringing it into the present to help cope with the present is what I'm calling the transcendence theme. In our quest for effective living, I discuss it in relation to how many of us engage in religion. And there, too, we engage in transcendence that helps us cope with our present realities, such as dealing with death and bereavement, but also with joys. But not all transcendence is benign. Some of it is quite malignant. Here is an example. What goes on inside the head of suicide bombers, the 9-11 terrorists, the persons who blow up themselves and others in a crowded marketplace, and the followers of a religious cult who die in mass suicide, all of them believe they somehow transcend, that they have access to something ultimate, such as the great Satan, and that here and now they are personally doing something very significant in relation to that ultimate, such as choking the great Satan by the act of suicide. The Quest for Effective Living book explores this and the related fact <clears throat> that all of us in our daily living are finding ways to transcend Transcendence is a way of living our lives. It is an ingredient of our coping with reality. It can be used for creating the beautiful, the benign, but it can also be used to create the malignant, the horrific. For this reason, it is crucial that we understand how it works. 
This applies to all the themes, incidentally. Finally, another a third theme, links. What happens when we are connected? Where did I put my bottle? <clears throat> I'm connected to the bottle. <clears throat> so the, this third theme is links, what happens when we are connected. Shortly after Indira Gandhi became Prime Minister of India, she visited the United States and the Soviet Union to try to get economic aid for India. She first met with President Lyndon Johnson. <clears throat> no one could accuse Mrs. Gandhi of sexually flirting with the President, but her manner was so charming, so sexually tinged, that President Johnson announced, I'll give her anything she wants. And he produced generous economic aid for India. The same thing happened on Mrs. Gandhi's visit to the Soviet Union. There the premier, the usually gloomy, sour-looking Alexei Kosygin, was suddenly transformed into a gracious, smiling host. He too produced generous economic aid for India. In all of this, sex is a silent partner. It is silently connected to a non-sexual transaction, which is quite common in modern marketing strategies. Sex sells, be it toothpaste or cars. But for a more explicit display of sex as a factor in daily living, here's an imaginary story from my book. Its title is A Story of Sex That Is Not About Sex, It Is About Links. A woman goes to a shoe store. <clears throat> she tries on some shoes. She's waited upon by a man, a salesman. At one point, the salesman says, these shoes look really good on you. This statement, by a man, may be enough for the woman to then buy this pair of shoes. Here, sex was not mentioned, but the fact that the man expressed that she, a woman, looked good in these shoes left its mark. It may have been decisive in the woman's buying that pair of shoes. Now, let us say that the salesman believed that the woman was being very friendly to him. This encouraged him to escalate some sexual banter, which became increasingly specific culminating in him in inviting the woman to join him in the back storage room for some explicit sex. Now, what are the woman's options? She could slap the man. She could walk out of the store. She could report the salesman to the store manager. Or she could accept the offer, or at least give serious consideration to accepting it. Why would she even consider these last two options? What's going on? Let us suppose <clears throat> that just before she, <clears throat> she left home that morning, <clears throat> let us suppose before she left home that morning, <clears throat> she had one of her very frequent arguments with her husband. It seems that they were always fighting, verbally fighting. <clears throat> all the time. They've been married 10 years. Before their marriage, and even in the early years of their marriage, <clears throat> they had such beautiful dreams of their life together, the many things they would do together, they, they would accomplish together. <clears throat> Yet over the years, none of the dreams became reality. It seems to the woman that the man, her husband, failed her time and again. He never did what he claimed what he was going to do. This happened over and over and over again. I'm only giving the woman's view. <clears throat> the husband would have different ideas, but here I'm discussing the woman's feelings. <clears throat> well, all these feelings cast a shadow over their bedroom, over sexual relations with her husband. 
She could never shake off her many disappointments with him, even in the course of sex. They were links to their sex life. Now, as the woman saw it, all this would be different with sex with a salesman, a stranger. She would never see him again. She would certainly never introduce him to her friends. Sex would have none of the disabling links it had with her husband, links that often made sex an unpleasant experience. Would sex with a stranger be completely free of links? No. Sex with a stranger would be linked, she tells herself, to sex in fantasy land. Sex would be glorious, free, unencumbered experience. It could be pure joy, pure anything you wish. Let us suppose that the woman actually went through with a sexual fling with a stranger. This event will produce new links for sex with her husband. I can think of two such links. You might be able to think of others. One, the woman feels so guilty, so ashamed for having betrayed her husband that she next becomes far more amorous to her husband, more than she has been for years, to the surprise of her husband. Or two, the opposite. She now tells herself she will stop making excuses for herself, for him. She will no longer make compromises. She tells herself, whatever did I see in him? Sex with husband now becomes virtually impossible. You may come up with other links, but enough of sex. Let us consider links in a quite different light. For many of us, the evening meal was the time when the whole family sat down together and followed a highly structured and predictable format, such as a prayer before the meal, followed by some discussion of the day's events that touched on the family. Altogether, this constituted a pattern of how one lived one's family life and perpetuated one's family traditions and customs. By contrast, many modern families take meals on the run. One or more members always seem to need to attend meetings that that take place at the evening meal times. Members frequently make a quick trip to a restaurant rather than taking time to prepare a meal at home. Members often eat separately even when they are at home. What all this illustrates is that we live a life of links. The family sit-down-together meal emphasized the link to family tradition. When the family was a cohesive community, the very core of one's daily life. The eating-on-the-run pattern illustrates the link to careers, to occupation, to making a living. In each type of eating a particular link prevails, be it focus on family and its tradition or family members' careers. They display different ways we organize our social space. To sum up, I've mentioned themes that show up in how we live in social space. They are constructs, which means that they are invented ways to jumpstart better understanding, better science of the social space in which we cope every day. Why do we need this? One, the larger picture. In the face of genocides, wars, and other horrors that claimed over 100 million lives during the past century, our existing sciences about social space have been impotent. We have not been anywhere as a science. The survival of our species is not at all certain, but better signs about social space, such as knowing how to puncture malignant moral worlds, might actually save us. Two, in our personal lives, each one of us must learn from birth to understand and master the social space that operates in and around us. That's what socialization is all about. 
in a world of Twitter and cell phones, we're entering a new level of links, of connectedness that may transform that social space around us in new ways. My focus on links barely scratches the surface, but it's a start. And so are the issues of closed moral worlds and transcendence. I'm convinced that knowing more about the characteristics of social space might spare us much pain in the future and help us lead more effective lives. I'm also convinced that the constructs I have suggested are not the last word. Other scholars and scientists may produce better ones. The greatest gift you can give me is to read my book, enjoy it, and then go beyond what I have done. I thank you for coming here and listening to my effort. Thank you. So I can answer questions or I can go a little bit into why I wrote the book. Um, yes. Well, I'm not sure I deal with open systems. I, I mainly emphasize the closeness of it. But starting from that, I would say you, you have competing closed systems that have firm adherence, uh, whether it's the free market religion or the, the government needs to take active. The, uh, I think of them as each of them being pretty closed moral systems that have their own adherence and are not easily penetrated by the other side. That's how I would see it. And it's not that so much that people are rational, but rather people believe they're rational or believe that the market will inevitably. But it's the closeness of these universes that is the real issue and the real danger in being, in being able to confront these things. That, that's how I would look at it. Um, but if, well, okay, go ahead. Yes, yes. You had both the person and the circumstances come together. <clears throat> person went after the army, which is itself closed more universe, more powerful than him. Yeah. But there was the attorney, Joseph Welch, when yes. McCarthy attacked the Sociedad's firm, his famous quote, happy with long last senator, no, no, no shame. Yes. And this was on television. Yes. It was, it was very early to 
television to be broadcasted in the Senate hearing. <laughs> he said that, and the audience spontaneously applauded. Where, and immediately after that, and that empowered the chair of the committee to adjourn the committee meeting. <laughs> All the senators walk out except McCarthy, who's left there alone, ranting and raving. Everybody else walks out. And literally, his moral universe collapsed. He was At that moment, moral. yes, yes. And that was it for him. It yeah. was all over. But I, I, I do wonder, and I ask you, how can we foster, and given any thought to it, how can we foster enabling people to do that? Because it strikes me that when people do that, it's actually fairly easy to puncture uh, these closed universes. But we do need the, the man, the woman, the people, and the circumstances to come together to enable them to do that, other than just by happenstance. You know, ha have you given any thought? Well, I, I've given frustration to it <laughs> in my mind to not, I mean, I fully agree that you're dead on target in terms of how McCarthy was punctured, his balloon was punctured in that moment, how exact are them. I'm not clear why it worked at that moment, that why before that the others were so silent. Uh, I, I wish one, I would like to be able or somebody to be able to develop rules that govern this kind of process under which circumstances would the puncturing work. I don't know the answer, but I think it's just extremely important to find out what are the rules of the game, when, when does a balloon... I mean, up to that time, all of you us should realize he seemed invulnerable. He could do terrible things to people, and nothing happened. Nobody spoke up like Mr. Welch. If nobody had the courage to speak up. So I, I, I don't have a nice answer, but I think there is a, a crucial challenge before us to discover the rules that govern the, the, uh, the operation of closed small worlds, under which circumstances are they vulnerable. I don't know the answer. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the you're you're pointing up a nice issue that once the puncture takes place, it can hold get hold very drastically. Um, then one, two, three. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's interplay. For instance, you can see that that uh, in the Milgram experiment, the authority played into the hands of creating a closed world. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so I'm um, really trying to emphasize this particular item. It doesn't exclude that the authority, except uh, sort of in the gamesmanship of, I guess, academics, Milgram claimed it was all about obedience to authority, and I'm saying I'm puncturing that one. Uh, but in reality, you're right. Of course, there's a relation between authority that helped to create the closed small worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah. that you're talking about under, that underlies um, 
the different worldviews you're talking about. Um, I think what happens is that, one, we don't take seriously if there's a philosophy underlying, underpinning everything, just as so many of the Germans never read or never really understood how serious the philosophy was that underpinned Hitler. But um, I think, to me, on the quest for effective living, that the challenge as a human being is to have the ability to be able to dialogue between the two worlds, that you can enter and dialogue with a person who is living in a fundamentalistic worldview or in a political one worldview that you don't have, and yet you can also go to another worldview, and I think that's part of our challenge, because if you allow yourself to be cubbyholed in one or the other, then you lose your ability to live in the free space that your mind and our political system here in this country gives you the freedom to do. Well, I think on the uh, sort of international situation right now, this is exactly what's operating, that there are claims to fundamentalists and others epitomized by this country that is trying to break through the fundamentalism. But it leaves open the, the, the issue of what do we stand for? Are there any fundamental values that they give coherence to our system or are we just wobbling along right now? It's not clear how this will play out is what I'm saying. I, I don't know whether you can come up with a new format where the fundamentalists can somehow be reconciled to the non-fundamentalists, etc. I don't know the answer to that, but it is currently an issue of where, say, the democracies stand in relation to fundamentalists. Um, we, can, we are good at debunking previous uh, closed systems uh, such as commu international communism, but right now it's not clear where we're heading on that issue of coexisting in different moral worlds. And how can fundamentally different moral worlds coexist is a, is a real issue. Yet. Yeah. Well, the 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 Milgram theme of, of, of uh, that obedience to authority is a real crucial issue uh, did carry over into sort of educational philosophies that we must have or we should have more open uh, questioning of authority, and to some extent, this, it is crucial. But we find different cultures have different perspectives about questioning authority. And and in a sense, as I was thinking about this earlier today, about the mindset of the scientist is a questioning of existing orthodoxies and that the... Um, that questioning the authority of existing knowledge. Um, so I think uh, part of the moral systems <clears throat> that we're trying to operate is a degree of questioning without a complete overthrow of all authority. 
that's a difficult game to play. I don't know what that gets at, what you are saying. <clears throat> yes. Oh, two of you. <clears throat> I was thinking about you say like links with uh, sexual links or how the links are, uh, are prevalent everywhere. Um, and then what she said about the uh, authority, uh, how you, you don't want to completely squash it because there's like there's a link of power that has this thing is there for a certain reason, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be there. So I guess you wouldn't want to demolish it. You just want to uh, make it more. Uh, One way I was thinking of doing that would be humor, because it seems like humor has a link that kind of generates more broadly, where then everyone can kind of understand it, and, uh, and it's, it's offensive but not offensive. If that <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> two things here. On one hand, I'm not advocating a particular life. Uh, What I am advocating, I'm getting the first half of your question I'm trying to address at first. Uh, I'm not trying to advocate a particular system. Uh, What I am advocating is a more tough-minded knowledge of how things work. And regardless of which society, which which, uh, orthodoxy you believe in, uh, I believe in the power of, first of all, learning how things work. Uh, Now, to get your second part, yes, humor can be a good instrument for debunking uh, orthodoxies, but humor has a very different role in different cultures. Do you remember the, the, the attempt to poke fun at Muhammad and what that gave rise to, where the, where the cartoonists thought he was just being humorous and the other side didn't buy that at all. So anyway, humor has, in some contexts, it is very powerful and is far more expressive than all written work combined. A good cartoon can eloquently summarize uh, something far better than 10 pages or books. But it operates within a moral context of what were what is acceptable, and so I would not give a blank check to humor cross culturally if you value your life <laughs> yeah. Are you saying how to uh, fight a closed system? Yeah, I mean, if you if if it's not a situation where a single person can be mm-hmm. the catalyst for a transformation uh, or you know the malignant, the malignant system, if you need the momentum of you know, a consensus to combat the malignant closed system, how do we? Um, Well, in a sense, I think you're getting back to the first question of what makes for vulnerability of a closed system. 
And I gave the profound answer that I don't know. <laughs> but that is an issue that needs to be addressed, uh, not just once, but as a pattern. Can we discover patterns of vulnerability, of how to address really close systems? I mean, I'm, uh, I remember uh, the, the power of international communism in the 1930s that was so appealing worldwide, a very humane way of giving to everybody what they need. You don't have any starving people in this country, and etc. So the international communist system had this beautiful message, but it also involved blinders. It was closed. So when people heard that Stalin was responsible for mass murders in the millions. Well, this could be laughed off. It's just a lot of capitalistic lies. The people couldn't think that way. So the closed system involves blind, moral blinders in one's thinking uh, that cannot easily be changed. And I think the challenge lies in how to puncture it. And I, I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the challenges in the social sciences is is exactly that we're living we sort of to study other closed moral universes or to study how things happen, in a way we're presupposing that we ourselves don't live in our own closed moral universe that has its own fundamentalism Mm -hmm. that blinds us to what is around us. Well, I think there is a difference between being linked to the content of a particular system, such as our society, and accepting the notion that the game of science is very abstract. Uh, And I'll clarify that in a minute. That when I talk about constructs, that they are not married to a particular uh, moral system when I talk about the construct of a closed moral world, they're not linked to a particular one, uh, that it's a generalized concept. Now, the way how I got to that kind of thinking is um, uh, the difference between history and science or between clinical uh, medicine and research medicine. So when, uh, so for, for uh, the... Um, when the researcher studies DNA of cancer cells and he is interested in um, what changes in the DNA are responsible for cancer cells getting out of hand. Well, that, the, that researcher is not looking at cancer as it is experienced by a person who has cancer. All the other things, the pain, the fears, the, the, the cost of medicines, the treatment, none of that is relevant to the guy who, does, who is living in this abstract scientific world of studying DNA changes in cancer cells. And that is the power, but also the limitation of this kind of thinking. He doesn't de- the, the cancer researcher on DNA doesn't deal with cancer as it is actually happening in particular persons at particular times at all. And yet, he may, may come up with a solution of the causes of cancer. 
this 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 guy in 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 the white coat. If they don't wear white coats anymore, but anyway, so I'm saying there's a difference between accepting the fact that a construct is an abstract creature that deals with some aspects in many contexts, in many different places, but it doesn't deal with fully complete reality of anyone. And uh, so I don't know whether that quite get, answers your question, but I'm saying uh, the power, of, my constructs might not be the right ones, but I'm sort of playing it to see how far it'll go with these constructs. And the assumption being, say, closed mall worlds would apply to nice people and terrible people, to nice countries and awful countries, etc. Just that limited feature of being closed, morally closed systems or the transcendence phenomenon. So, on. so that's the game I'm playing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I think you're right. That is, in many ways, this has been a trap and a seduction that has worked on the social sciences. Wherever locked into the concreteness of, of the actual situation, and also it's part of a poor man's science. That is, you study things that are currently popular, that are currently fundable, uh, rather than those things that are intellectually. Important. So in physics, you have uh, traditionally uh, rate of change, acceleration, something. It's a very abstract stuff rather than uh, how fast does a bullet actually go when it hits a particular person. In other words, the physical sciences are able to be much more abstract and have benefited by doing it that way. And we have in a sense, paid the price of getting too locked up into sort of the concrete immediacies of what is currently popular. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're totally locked into what I call a poor man's science. So, I mean, 40, 50 years ago, the big thing was criminology, crime, juvenile delinquency, and that that attracted money and research. And then came other fashions, the most recent ones, gender research, race. Uh, These are currently real binding uh, issues that affect people. Now, however glamorous and real these are, and that's where money comes in, that doesn't necessarily lead to science breakthroughs that are not sufficiently abstract. And in the long run, you go on to the next fashion uh, 10 years later, and uh, people make their careers out of what is currently fundable. And the residue then is very small, the the scientific residue. That's why I'm, I'm... saying we need to jumpstart a different kind of a science that I'm suggesting here. And I'm saying it's very much in keeping how the physical sciences operate. If you ask, you may ask me, what is social space? Well, if I ask a physical scientist, and maybe there's some here, I'm sure there's some here know more than I do, they will talk about constructs that govern physical space. They'll talk about this construct shows uh, some aspect of physical space, another construct. That's what the work has been done. 
Uh, anyway, what is our time limitation here? That's a good idea. Um, <laughs>